You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, Donald Trump asks the US Supreme Court to keep him on the Colorado ballot. We'll assess his chances of success. Also ahead, the US and Philippines hold joint military patrols in the South China Sea. We'll examine what Manila stands to gain from Washington's protective gesture. Plus... Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi addresses a rally ahead of the opening of a controversial Hindu temple on the site of a centuries-old mosque. Plus, our paper review comes today from Istanbul. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The former U.S. President Donald Trump has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn a ban on his name being included on the primary ballot paper in Colorado. The state's highest court had ruled that Mr. Trump was ineligible because he'd engaged in insurrection over the U.S. Capitol riot. Well, to bring us the latest, Scott Lucas joins me. He's adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College Dublin. A very good afternoon to you, Scott. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Emma. Happy New Year. So, uh, Happy New Year to you too, Scott. So explain to us, we have a new year and a new court proceeding with Donald Trump. And this one is is an appeal to the US highest court. What is he trying to achieve here? Well, of course, Emma, although it's uh, another court proceeding, this time it's to the highest court. And it is on the serious matter of whether Trump can be listed on the ballot for the Republican primaries, uh, the first of which starts in just a couple of weeks in New Hampshire, Uh, In this case, it's the Colorado primary, which is in the first week in March. Uh, Last month, the Colorado Supreme Court said that Trump, as you noted, because he had engaged in insurrection before and during the Capitol attack to overturn the 2020 election, uh, that he was disqualified under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, The main secretary of state also made the political decision because she oversees elections that Trump's name should not be on the ballot Trump was given until today to appeal the Colorado decision. Uh, And if he didn't, it would stand. He has filed that appeal. Now we wait to see if the Supreme Court, and I can talk you through the issues, if the Supreme Court says Colorado's decision stands, which opens the door for other states to ban Trump from the ballots, or if the U.S. Supreme Court steps in and says no state, Colorado, Maine, or any other state, can take this action. And this, as a result, I would imagine, would mean that a Supreme Court intervention would resolve the issue once and for all and mean that the former president, Donald Trump, could continue to place his name on ballot papers across the US. It depends on the nature of the intervention, um, Emma. So if the Supreme Court simply ruled narrowly on the Colorado decision, and they found, you know, in other words, whether or not Colorado had acted properly through its courts, and that decision applied only to Colorado, no, then you've got other states which could pursue this avenue, um, either, again, through the executive or through the courts of disqualifying Trump. If the Supreme Court made a general determination on the basis of the Constitution and set a precedent by the way it interpreted the U.S. Constitution and what's called the Insurrection Clause, then that would apply to all 50 states. That would be much broader than simply saying it's just Colorado 
and the other 49 states are left to make their own decisions. What are the prospects of uh, President Trump, former President Trump, um, winning this? Yeah, I, I don't want to predict. It's not my place to predict a legal outcome. Uh, you know, we, the fact is, is that there are issues which could go either way. Uh, what I'd say is, is, is look out for the court to rule probably on two things that I think will be uh, instrumental. The first is whether the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, when it disqualifies an official, uh, any U.S. official from holding office because of insurrection, whether that applies to the president as well. Uh, Trump's defenders and some legal experts say that the president is excluded, is not under that clause. The second uh, area of determination would, I think, be whether you can disqualify Trump on the basis of insurrection before the outcome of a criminal trial. Uh, Trump does face uh, multiple felony indictments in at least two cases related to the Capitol attack, one at the federal level, one in Georgia. But of course, those cases have not yet been resolved. And the court might say that it is uh, uh, premature to disqualify him from ballots pending a criminal decision. If I was to look at this politically, you probably know the basics and your listeners do. It's a 6-3 conservative majority. Three of those uh, justices were appointed by Trump, two of them in very controversial circumstances, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. So if you were looking at this politically rather than legally, you think the odds are in Trump's favor. What about um, looking ahead to the New Hampshire primary? What happens there? I think, and this is where I really, you know, take uh, take a bit of umbrage with the way the U.S. media has almost anointed Trump as the Republican nominee um, and has done so for weeks and has let him suck all the oxygen out of the room and not paid attention to the other candidates, the other issues. Uh, what has been interesting during this time is that Nikki Haley, uh, the former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., has been rising in the polls. Uh, she still is second to Trump, but having been at about 10 percent in the polls, she's up to 30 percent in one poll last week. If Haley was to run a strong second in New Hampshire, the media narrative might change and they might say we actually have a Republican contest here because the next primary after New Hampshire, it's in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state. Scott Lucas, thank you as ever for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Briefing live on Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is just nudging seven minutes past midday. Here's a look at the day's other news headlines. Here's Isabella Jewell. Thanks, Emma. A day of mourning has been declared in Iran after two explosions killed more than 80 people in the southeastern city of Kaman. The blasts were near the Saheb al-Zaman Mosque, where thousands had gathered near the grave of Commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a US drone strike four years ago. Officials called the blast a terror attack, but no one has yet claimed responsibility. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump and Prince Andrew are among the high-profile figures named in a series of newly unsealed court documents relating to Jeffrey Epstein. A US judge ordered the release of the records on the convicted sex offender as part of a case involving his associates, Gillian Maxwell. A New Zealand man who spent nearly 24 hours stranded at sea was rescued after using the sun's reflection in his watch to attract attention. The fisherman fell overboard on Tuesday while trying to reel in a marlin. Local police said it was a miracle he survived the ordeal. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Isabella. Now, a joint patrol in the South China Sea is currently being held between the United States and the Philippines. The two nations increased their security ties last year as tensions built in the region between Manila and Beijing. Richard Haydarian is academic and columnist for the Philippine Daily Inquirer and joins me on the line now from Manila. Good afternoon, Richard. 
Pleasure. Good morning. Uh, just uh, explain to us the nature of these drills. What do they look like? Hundreds of joint military activities every year. In fact, uh, more than 200 uh, recently, which makes them, uh, which makes it one of the most active uh, bilateral alliances anywhere in the Indo-Pacific region. But the situation is really, really dire right now. So the latest exercises, naval exercises between the United States and the Philippines was close to the Scarborough Shoal and the Reed Bank uh, area where China and the Philippines have been at the loggerheads uh, for the past few months. And, and the situation is so disconcerting that the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is notorious for its silence whenever China is doing something wrong uh, to one of its members, even ASEAN had to release a statement uh, just a week ago where it expressed deep concern about what was happening in its own quote-unquote maritime sphere. So I think the worry is that, yes, I mean, everyone's watching what's happening in Taiwan. Everyone's worried about what China does to Taiwan. But, but to be honest, I think, uh, you know, the, the real ra- flashpoint of 2024, one of them is definitely the South China Sea, because China is trying to bully the Philippines and intimidate the Philippines uh, so that the Philippines gives up on trying to assert its rights in the area. At the same time, China is also genuinely worried that the Philippines will bring more of America and other allies, including Britain, into the picture in order to push back. So so no one is blinking. So we're having a very dangerous chicken game. And in fact, China is also conducting its own military act- activities in the area to project strength. Indeed. I mean, just looking at what's going on out there, there's four vessels from the Philippine Navy and four ships from the US Indo-Pacific Command, including an aircraft carrier, cruiser and, and two destroyers. Um, the Philippines are saying that this is, a, this is marking a significant leap in the Philippines' alliance with the United States. And just just how big a leap is this being seen? Well, I think as far as the leap is concerned, the big leap actually came last year when President Marcos Jr. expanded the so-called enhanced defense cooperation agreement between two, two sides. And now, you know, Americans are going to have access to, you know, more than half a dozen bases close to the South China Sea and Taiwan. Uh, and, and the Philippines has made it clear to China that the more they're going to bully the Philippines, the more bases will be open up to the Americans. But I think the important thing also is are the joint aerial patrols in the area between the United States and the Philippines, but also joint um, maritime patrols, including this, uh, these exercises, but also with other like-minded powers like Japan, Australia. And we're hoping that other countries, including France, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, uh, will step in, not to mention also India. So, so this is the Philippine strategy to rope in other like-minded countries who are also deeply concerned about China. But, but as, as the Philippines does that, of course, it also gives more pretext to hardliners in China to say, hey, we need to punish the Philippines because they're making the situation particularly difficult for us here in, in, in this part of this world. Indeed, I mean, China has said it, it will not see any escalation of, of military involvement between the US and, and, and Manila as, as unnoticed. Has there been any direct response from China? And if so, what are the long-term prospects for this? Because this is obviously a, a situation that has been going for years and years and is not getting any easier. Yes, it's true. This, this situation has been going on for years and years. But what uh, I think definitely the past six months or one year was, was among the most tense as far as Philippine-China relations is concerned. Uh, you know, back in the day, we had President Rodrigo Duterte, who had a very good relationship with China. And every time China tried to impose its will in the area, he essentially took the back seat. But now under President Marcos Jr., the Philippines is trying to project strength in the area. This is backed up by many Filipinos at home, senators in the Philippines, congressmen in the Philippines. They want to kick out the Chinese ambassador. So, you know, because, you know, they feel China is bullying the Philippines. And then at the same time, the Biden administration has really doubled down its efforts to not only win over Marcus Jr., uh, but also you know, essentially win over more and more countries in the region 
rope them in and hem in China. Because the sense here is that China will only respect strength. And since the Philippines on its own obviously doesn't have enough strength to hold China to account, it will inevitably have to bring other countries in. Of course, the worry with that is the escalatory dynamic. And everyone's uh, wondering who will blink first. Because as far as diplomacy is concerned, really diplomacy is on the ice at this point in time. But, you know, each side can blame another side. I think as far as the Philippines is concerned, you know, maybe they can reconsider some of the bases they want to grant to the Americans close to Taiwan and exchange, make sure that they get some concessions from China in the South China Sea. But I think the thinking in the Philippine government right now is you have to show strength. You have to draw the line. Once you get the respect of China, then maybe you can negotiate something out of this. Short of that, the Philippines will just have to keep on pushing and pushing and also test how far the United States is willing to go to to help its allies in this part of the world. Since we have the conflict in Gaza and Israel, we have the conflict in Ukraine. And there are also questions as to how much the U.S., has wherewithal and commitment to its allies in this part of the world. You mentioned ASEAN was saying that they are, you know, that they are worried and that they needed an unprecedented diplomatic intervention here. I mean, what form could that take? Well, I mean, speaking of for a very long time, I mean, since 1998, 1997, we were supposed to negotiate a legally binding code of conduct in the area uh, based on international law. But the problem is that, you know, since China lost the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal Award to the Philippines, and this was a court in The Hague under the aegis of the United Nations Convention of Law, see, China is insisting on a different version of international law. So how can you come up with a code of conduct where you don't have the same legal reference point? And on, at many occasions, we see China shifting the goalpost uh, at some point saying, yo, we, we can have a goal code of conduct, but it it's not supposed to address territorial and sensitive sovereignty issues. So I think they have been taking ASEAN for a ride. So to be honest, uh, the strategy of the Philippines right now is not to rely on ASEAN 10, which is sometimes just short of useless when it comes to helping the Philippines in the South China Sea, but deal individually with key ASEAN countries. So actually in coming days, President Marcos Jr. is heading to Vietnam in order to negotiate, among others, a potential bilateral maritime security agreement with Vietnam. And behind the scenes, there are also similar efforts vis-a-vis Indonesia, potentially also Singapore and Malaysia. The idea is that maybe ASEAN as a whole is not going to stand up to China. But if the Philippines can get three or four key countries within ASEAN uh, to, to adopt a common front, maybe China will start paying attention and not just see this as, you know, Philippines as the proxy of America. Therefore, we should discipline them. Uh, I think that's why it's important for the Philippines to not only uh, rely on Western allies, but to actively reach out also to fellow ASEAN countries who share territorial disputes with China and who share concerns of the Philippines vis-a-vis China, despite having a different diplomatic or rhetorical approach. Richard Haydarian in Manila, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd you come in here looking like that is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in (laughs) your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
17.45pm in New Delhi, 12.15pm here in London. Now, later this month, a Hindu temple at Ayodhya in India will be inaugurated by the country's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The site of the temple, however, is highly controversial. It was once home to a centuries-old mosque. Well, joining us from Bengaluru is a journalist, Maya Sharma. Hello, Maya. Hello, good afternoon. So this this temple has been decades in the making and it comes from a, a moment of real violence in the early 1990s, doesn't it? Well, actually, the dispute goes back centuries, even earlier than that. The first time there was a violent attack on the tam- temple was back in the 1850s when the British had to get involved and divide it. But yes, in 1992, a demolition of a mosque that was existing at the place in Ayodhya was brought down. The mosque was brought down by a mob, a procession of Hindus who believed it to be the birthplace of Rama. Rama, one of the gods, one of the avatars, Vishnu of the Hindu pantheon. They believed it was his birthplace and a place very sacred to Hindus. And they demolished that mosque in 1992, December the 6th. And that demolition was followed by riots. It's a very bitter, bitter time of India's history. And On that place, that very site, believed to be the birthplace of Rama by many, this temple is coming up. The building began in 2020 in August and it's going to be inaugurated in January, later this month on the 24th of January with Prime Minister Modi in attendance. So it's a very sensitive, very sensitive issue here in India. But that new temple coming up, being inaugurated later this month in an election year. And it is being seen, or some are suggesting, that this this opens up Prime Minister Narendra Modi to to sort of use this moment to symbolise India's transformation into a, into a Hindu nation state. How accurate a description is that? Well, if you ask the opposition in India, they will certainly say it's being politicised, that political use is being made of this entire Ram Janmabhumi movement, the entire Ram Temple movement, that the BJP is using it. And the growth of the BJP, the ruling party in India, did really coincide with the movement to build this temple at Ayodhya, even if that meant the destruction of the mosque. This movement really gathered force in the 1980s. The BJP was perhaps the political face of that entire movement, which was backed by other right-wing groups as well. The BJP rose with that movement, which became an all-India movement, with people moving towards Ayodhya, contributing money for bricks from around the country, saying that they wanted a temple built at this space. There was a mosque there. The mosque was demolished. But last year, in, in the Supreme Court actually decided in 2019, ruled that the land belonged to the Indian government. And the Indian government would hand it over to a trust and build a temple and a separate five acres of land would be given for building a mosque. But it is an issue which still causes a lot, a lot of controversy, a lot of a grief among people who feel that perhaps they were being treated unfairly. But it is being seen as a time of strong Hindutva, and that is very much the line which the ruling party, Modi's BJP, has been following. And they're definitely using it in an election year. Indeed. I mean, there was an interview with the Financial Times last month with Narendra Modi, and, and he was asked about the treatment of Muslims. And it, by all accounts, he he chose to talk about another community, the, the Parsis. Um, how much does this, what is the sort of like the long-term future of India's identity shaped by Narendra Modi? Well, definitely, uh, there is seen to be a greater polarisation between the communities since 2014, since the time the BJP led by Narendra Modi came to power. There is definitely a feeling that perhaps the rights of the minorities are not considered as important as they used to be before that. I know that when the Supreme Court ruling happened in 2019, saying 
yes, there was a mosque that, that was demolished. But before that, there was a temple. So they have a right to build a temple there. I know there's a, a great deal of grief and concern among the Muslim community and people who support the Muslim point of view, saying that history is history. We can't go demolishing mosques and building a temple. There is certainly a feeling of persecution. There's certainly a feeling of perhaps not quite the same sense of independence for minorities as there was earlier. This, of course, is something that officially the BJP denies. But with this movement, this building of this temple in an election year, it does seem to be another step towards what the BJP would probably like to see as a Hindu state in India. Maya Sharma, thank you as ever for joining us on the line from Bengaluru. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally, a look now at some of the day's newspapers. The journalist and Middle East correspondent Ruth Michelson joins me on the line now from Istanbul. Good afternoon, Ruth. Good afternoon, Emma. Uh, This is a time in Middle Eastern history where people are looking and hoping that things will stay relatively calm, but there are real, real real fears now of a wider war uh, following events in the last couple of days, firstly in Lebanon and yesterday with explosions in Iran. Exactly. I mean, we've started 2024, we're just a few days into it, with exactly as you say, the assassination of Hamas, the top Hamas official in Beirut, the deaths of at least 84 people in a twin bombing in Iran, increasing attacks in the Red Sea, and just now today a strike in Baghdad. Um, so, for, I mean, a huge rundown of this in the New York Times, um, essentially, you know, listing all of these events and saying, you know, fears of uh, that the region is closer to the brink of a regional war. Um, and the American uh, administration's view on this, its efforts to, in the words of the New York Times, try and stave it off. Um, since the events that we saw on the 7th of October. Um, The New York Times says American officials saying it was too soon to predict whether there would be a wider war, um, but at the same time mentioning things like uh, US officials and 12 um, allied countries issuing a written warning to the Houthis in Yemen, given the near daily missile, drone um, and sea attacks on commercial vessels in um, in the Red Sea. Um, and mentioned that uh, Biden administration officials are signaling that their patience is running out, in the words of the New York Times, Um, and essentially giving it this wider rundown of everything else that's that's going on, um, including uh, following on from the um, attack in Iran, um, mentioning that uh, those familiar with Iran's internal discussions said that the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei had instructed Iranian military, uh, military commanders to pursue strategic patience and avoid getting Iran into a direct military confrontation with the United States amid some blame um, or potential speculation that uh, the U.S. was responsible for uh, the bombing in Iran yesterday, although there's no evidence so far to suggest that. So um, just that, that's the coverage from the New York Times. Where you are at the moment in Istanbul, I mean, yesterday, well, today, um, as we speak, the Iranian Prime Minister, um, Raisi, should have been in Ankara, but he's back in, uh, in Iran dealing with the aftermath of the bombings. Um, there was a suggestion that at this meeting that was supposed to have take place today that um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan would be 
offering Iran uh, the the framework of a of a peace process that could be presented um, to try to solve the Israel Hamas conflict. I mean, what are these? What are the, the the Turkish papers saying about what's going on? I mean, the Turkish papers have focused very much on. Um, Erdogan's approach and, and condolences following the uh, uh, the bombing happening that happened yesterday, and exactly as you say, the cancelled meeting. There was mention of this in, for example, Daily Sabah this morning. Um, this cancelled meeting that here was this opportunity um, for something maybe approaching diplomacy or at least consultation. And, and Turkey has long been seen um, as you know one potential essential diplomatic route. Um, to negotiate with um, Iran from from the West, or at least to pass messages to Iran, and Erdogan is always very happy to assume that role, and that of course the uh, the explosion that happened yesterday, and the fact that Iran is currently um, having a, a day of mourning due to the attacks, meant that this uh, Erdogan's first official diplomatic visit of the year was cancelled. And there was lots of mention of that in the press because of the idea that this was something that he was prioritising. Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned a US reaction to what's going on, but there's a, an article in the Middle East Eye which is covering the fact that the senior Biden officials' resignation over the United States support for Israel um, is calling uh, is calling out the Biden administration by uh, describing it as wholly out of line with democratic values in terms of the amount of backing being given to Israel. How's that being covered where you are? Um, so making... A huge amount of uh, uh, headlines here. I think it's rather interesting that, for example, um, Al-Ahram, the largest um, Egyptian newspaper um, partially owned by the state, um, is carrying a detailed article from the Associated Press um, mentioning that the official um, that um, that uh, you're referring to here, a Palestinian-American Tariq Habash, um, he's the second official, first known of, of Palestinian origin, to resign from the Biden administration in protest of uh, Joe Biden's actions regarding the war. Um, and it's also mentioning the um, the letter published by uh, 17 Biden re-election campaign staffers, staffers um, issuing this anonymous letter saying that uh, Biden risks losing voters over his stance um, regarding the war on Gaza um, and essentially saying that they've they've seen volunteers quit in droves, people who voted blue, so Democrat for decades, feeling uncertain about doing so for the first time ever because of this conflict. Bruce Michelson, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and thanks to the producer, Lillian Fawcett, and also to Isabella Jewell. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>